The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello. In a previous episode, we looked at Goblin Market, one of the most unusual poems of the Victorian era, and indeed one of the strangest poems I have ever read. It's a mysterious creature, an odd goblin of a poem, nearly as mysterious as the poet who authored it, and the demonic figures she dreamed up. Her name was Christina Rossetti. How in the world did she come to write this poem? Was it the devil speaking through her and taking over? She came from an incredible family and was kind of an incredible person. She lived in incredible times. Does any of that explain Goblin Market? Just who was Christina Rossetti? We examine her life and her poetry today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. Christina Rossetti. Wow. So we have recently looked at William Blake, with the help of our guest, John Higgs, Blake was a visionary. He was an iconoclast. And now here comes Christina Rossetti, who in some ways is very unlike Blake. She was not out there throwing bombs. Her reputation as a person was, and mostly still is, one of moral probity, religious determination, and stalwart allegiance to her faith. Famously, in Britain at least, she wrote poems that have been set to music as Christmas hymns in the bleak midwinter and love came down at Christmas. We don't listen to those too much in the States, so I have no particular nostalgia for them, but I know at least one of the tunes. Here's In the Bleak Midwinter, in case it's new to you. You know that one, right? Maybe? <laughs> okay, well, the lyrics are taken from this poem. Listen for the ease with which Rossetti sets forth her words. They flow with simplicity, with grace, with unaffected art. Listen to how she uses repetition, how effective and with such fearlessness, and how the changes in rhyme and rhythm, the patterns and unexpected distortions of the pattern serve to emphasize and punctuate her thoughts. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter, long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away, when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty 
Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. Hmm. It's such a lovely and somber poem. The music they found for it is very suitable. It's the sadness of a winter's day. Probably not one in Bethlehem, but in northern climes, where the sun doesn't shine all that many hours and is often covered by clouds when it does. It's that late afternoon dying of the twilight. There's the humility of knowing the wintry sun is going down and we are poor and powerless to prevent it. And yet... There's promise, promise of a mother's kiss, a mother in maiden bliss, as Rossetti sort of was too, a maiden blissful with the joys of Christian devotion, bestowing a kiss, worshiping the beloved. And we, poor and lowly people, all of us, give our heart, because it's all, all we have, and all that's important. It's lovely stuff. Who was she? How did the same person write Love Came Down at Christmas, which is even more devout, and one might say a little on the preachy side, and many other Christian poems, and then spin out something with as much gusto for sin as Goblin Market? I know, I know, Goblin Market has a message of redemption and sisterly love and all that, but it's weird. It's Halloween more than Christmas. It's disturbing. You wouldn't give it to children, not if you're paying attention to it anyway, and you wouldn't read it in church. The message to me, the sisterly love and redemption, is almost tacked on an afterthought, like the sort of thing you do after the sinning is over and you're looking around at the Vegas hotel room with the tiger in the bathtub. I don't mean to be describing the hangover. <laughs> I wouldn't mind erasing that movie from my hard drive. Nothing against it. Kind of like Bradley Cooper. He seems like a decent enough guy, but he's no Christina Rossetti. So let's get back on track. Christina Rossetti was born in December of 1830 in London, where she lived most of her life. Her family was quite extraordinary from a literary and artistic standpoint. Her father was Gabriele Pasquale, Pasquale means Easter, by the way. Gabriele Pasquale Giuseppe Rossetti, a great expert in Dante who had left Naples in 1824 and worked in London as a professor of Italian. He married a woman named Frances Mary Lavinia Polidori. And if that name Polidori rings a bell with you, congratulations, you are likely to be a fan of romantic poetry and prose, too. Francis's brother's name was John Polidori. John Polidori was Byron's doctor, and he has a claim to fame himself, literary fame, that is. He was traveling through Europe with Byron and Shelley, and Shelley's new paramour, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, later Mary Shelley. This crew was all staying together at a house near Lake Geneva in Switzerland. It was rainy, and they were bored. 
Byron proposed that everyone should write a ghost story. Mary Shelley happened to write the first version of Frankenstein. And Polidori wrote The Vampire, which became the first vampire story, the first modern vampire story published in English. So there we go. That was Christina Rossetti's uncle, though he died before she was born. To recap, her mother's brother wrote The Vampire. Her father was a great scholar of Dante. And her siblings, two brothers and a sister, were also literary and artistic, especially her older brother, Gabriel Charles Dante Rossetti whom we know better as Dante Gabriel Rossetti. He wrote poems himself, and he translated works, but he was probably most famous for his illustrations and paintings. He was a leader of the pre-Raphaelite movement. This was a reference to the painter Raphael, and a rejection of the style that came after Raphael and Michelangelo. These people, the pre-Raphaelites, wanted intense colors, lots of detail, complex compositions. They used living people as models. Christina herself posed several times, as did her mother. Literature was deeply embedded into the works and imagination of the pre-Raphaelites. They adored Keats and Blake. Dante made illustrations for the published edition of the poem we looked at last time, Goblin Market. But let's turn to Christina. She was in this deep literary world where all her siblings wanted to be poets. Her father adored and was an expert in poetry and a mother whose own brother was in close proximity to the greatest poets of that era. Christina was born the same year as Emily Dickinson, by the way. A nice harmony, as if we've set two queens on the chessboard at the same time, monarchs of poetry in their own way, powerful figures who could do almost anything with their craft, move anywhere on the board. Though these two were separated by an ocean and lived very different lives. Rossetti was in a prominent family, and even within it, she was known for her gifts. These were the sort of siblings who would write poems for fun. For games, parlor games, one person writing a line, and then they would all try to finish it with a couplet or... Someone would suggest a topic and a rhyme scheme, and they would scurry off to their separate corners and write a quick sonnet on that subject. And Christina was the best of them. Even Dante, who himself grew up and wrote some excellent poetry, even Dante acknowledged it, believed in Christina's talent. Some other games and occupations in this, by all accounts, happy childhood included chess, trips to the zoo, and putting out a family newspaper. Apparently, Christina's first poem was one she dictated to her mother. It was just two lines. Quote, Cecilia never went to school without her gladiator. I kind of love this poem. If a child wrote it, let's take my own kids out of it. If my kids wrote it, I'd think, oh, how cute, how wonderful. Let's put this on the fridge. If some other child wrote it, I'd say, oh, nice, aren't kids wonderful, so clever. And I would try to appear to be as interested as the person telling me about the poem, probably a parent or grandparent, but frankly, my interest would be a little bit strained, as it is when others describe their dreams to me or tell me that they misheard something and were momentarily confused. Ha ha, lol, lol, lol. But when it's a future poet... Someone as deft and difficult to absorb as Christina Rossetti, I am intensely intrigued because this could be a clue. Her first poem 
Hmm. At the risk, then, of reading too much into this little piece of juvenilia. Juvenilia coming from juvenile, of course, who probably saw a few gladiator competitions in his day. Actually, we know that he did, because he wrote about female gladiators. But that's for another show. Christina Rossetti's little poem about Cecilia going to school with her gladiator tells me much more about Christina's young mind, already sparkling like a firecracker. It tells me she was steeped in stories from history, the gladiators being right there prominent the way dinosaurs might be in a child's mind today. It tells me that Christina can imagine a little girl going to school with one, needing protection, perhaps. Blending the routine and everyday and actual with something from history. It's like saying, whenever I brush my teeth, the T-Rex puts the paste on my brush. Cecilia isn't headed back to Rome or doesn't live there. She's going to school, probably around the corner, right there in London. But she's sure to take along a gladiator of all things. The other thing this tells me is how much these Rossettis were thinking in terms of poetry. Because, hey, guess what? This is not really much of a poem. It's basically a sentence that's been divided into two lines partway through. There's no reason why this being spoken aloud would be a poem and not just a a single prose sentence, except that the family recorded it as a poem. Christina herself maybe framed it that way. Here's my poem. It's two lines. (laughs) It tells me that whether it was Christina or her mother, it's a family that values poetry that finds it wherever they can, that plucks verses from the air the way other families might pluck fruit from their trees. If this family is hungry and happens to be underneath fruit trees with ripe fruit, as I hope they are and do for the sake of my metaphor, as well as for their own good health and nutrition. Last time we talked about Rossetti as an older, calmer woman describing her bouts of temper to her niece, her youthful bouts of temper, a temper that had once driven her to cut her own arm with a knife. And indeed, her father said, I've got two calms, Maria and William, and two storms, Christina and Gabriel. Gabriel, or Dante Gabriel, once drew a sketch of his sister, Christina, as a teenager. Was she posing with a smile, maybe sitting with her notebook writing poetry? No. In his depiction, she's destroying a room in a fit of anger. She seems to have responded to this internal chaos with a a turn to religion, or maybe I should say, in order to harmonize her religious impulses with her own chaotic behavior, she developed a plan of strict religious adherence. She went to church a lot. She set up a plan to prevent herself from being vain and idle. She put strict rules of behavior around herself and abided by those rules. She was a devout Anglican. Her younger brother described her as, quote, a fountain sealed, end quote. With all that personality tamped down, repressed, perhaps one might psychoanalyze from our 21st century couch. Anyhow, something blocked her personality, her anger, her temper, something blocked it from appearing. It's interesting that her younger brother doesn't say that she lost her spirit or her energy faded or she matured into something less stormy. He described it as a sealed fountain, not a dried-up one. 
Presumably, Christina's personality still exhibited some signs of the fountain, even if her actions were no longer the sort that would tear up the room or self-stab the arm. Maybe he saw it in her writing, at least some of the time. There were Christian poems like Good Friday and poems about a fallen woman, like Twice. Many of her poems take an earthly love with all its sins and pain and the shame of premarital sex, etc., sins of the Victorian age, and turn that love towards something higher, like the sisterly love we saw in Goblin Market or the love of God. Here's her poem, Twice. I took my heart in my hand, O my love, O my love. I said, let me fall or stand, let me live or die. But this once, hear me speak, O my love, O my love. Yet a woman's words are weak. You should speak, not I. You took my heart in your hand with a friendly smile. With a critical eye, you scanned and set it down and said, it is still unripe. Better wait a while. Wait while the skylarks pipe till the corn grows brown. As you set it down, it broke. Broke, but I did not wince. I smiled at the speech you spoke, at your judgment that I heard. But I have not often smiled since then, nor questioned since, nor cared for cornflowers wild, nor sung with the singing bird. I take my heart in my hand, oh my God, oh my God. My broken heart in my hand, thou hast seen. Judge thou my hope was written on sand, oh my God, oh my God. Now let thy judgment stand, yea, judge me now. This contemned of a man, this marred one heedless day, this heart take thou to scan both within and without. Refine with fire its gold, purge thou its dross away, yea, hold it in thy hold, whence none can pluck it out. I take my heart in my hand, I shall not die but live. Before thy face I stand, I, for thou callest such, all that I have I bring, all that I am I give. Smile thou, and I shall sing, but shall not question much. Twice, that poem is called. What's twice in this poem? What's happening twice? Judgment, at least in my interpretation. This is a woman who has given herself to her lover, causing her to be judged by others here on earth. You sinner, you fallen woman, you hussy. No word about the man, of course, the cad who brought this about, who was also a sinner. That's been around forever. The famous double standard and is still with us, isn't it? The man is wink-wink just being a man. Boys will be boys, locker room talk. He's sowing his oats, he's following his nature, like the scorpion on the frog's back. Women trust men like this, put their hearts in the hands of these men. The men might use them, quote-unquote. And society doesn't say, well, the cruel cad is the one who pays. It says, you lose, woman. You gave up your virtue, you surrendered it. To your disgrace, we now cast you out. You have become a woman with a reputation, in quotation marks. And then the second judgment, the judgment of God. And I don't see Christina Rossetti in this poem saying, 
it's unfair to face God, so much as she's saying, this is what will happen, and it does happen to women every day, and our hearts must be with them. They must make some amends, if not to society, then to God at least. It's right and proper that they do so. It's an aching poem, aching to be good, to be pure, even as impurity steals over us inevitably, attacks us, makes us do things we can't resist, impulses it takes a lifetime to tamp down. Christina Rossetti never married. She lived with her mother all her life. She was in love a couple of times, but she rejected three suitors because of religious differences. In retrospect, I wonder if she'd have been happier in a convent free from the pain of not letting herself be with the men that she sometimes actually did love and want to be with. She also rejected the Pre-Raphaelites, sort of. She did not consider herself to be one, even as her brother led the group and invited her in, and some of her poetry was published in Pre-Raphaelite journals. She did pose. She also posed for their paintings, giving them a face multiple times to use, and maybe her face became emblematic of what we know of them, how we think of them, this introspective and melancholy woman who, as a younger woman, was quite striking and who turned into a matronly or anti-figure fairly quickly, something she herself was conscious of. It's a spirit that animates one of my favorite poems of hers, one that isn't about a fallen woman or a turn to God. It's not a hymn or a Christmas carol, but a sonnet giving us insight into something right here on Earth, in London, in an artist's studio, where men who paint portraits of women idealize and objectify those women. It reminds me of men who want so badly to understand female desire and to have it in their lives that they write novels or screenplays in which women want to have sex just as much as any man does, which is certainly potentially true in life. In the real world, women have that power and that agency, and God bless them. Why not? If that's what they want to do. But sometimes you suspect that the men who are authors are inventing a character they really, really, really hope they could meet one day. Imagine this, how great life would be if I met a woman who was this frank and open about sex and who wanted to have sex with me as much or more than I wanted to have sex with her. Hmm. A sexual jackpot. My life flooded with those coins, everything finally going my way. Well, this sonnet doesn't go quite that far down the sexual path. It's more about beauty and youth. But there's something related there. This is called In the Artist's Studio. One face looks out from all his canvases. One self-same figure sits or walks or leans. We found her hidden just behind those screens. That mirror gave back all her loveliness. A queen in opal or in ruby dress. A nameless girl in freshest summer greens. A saint, an angel. Every canvas means the same one meaning, neither more or less. He feeds upon her face by day and night. And she, with true kind eyes, looks back on him. Fair as the moon and joyful as the light. Not wan with waiting, not with sorrow dim, not as she is, but was, when hope shone bright, not as she is, but as she fills his dream.
Yes, I'll pose for you. One can almost hear Christina saying to her brother and to the other artists who wanted her to sit for their paintings. Yes, I'll allow my face to be the one you're putting into this costume or historical scene or other situation. And my face will adorn your studio. And at night, you'll gaze at it, imagining that it's me gazing back at you, constantly in love with you or angry at you or here to be your muse in whatever way. Yes, it's my face with those true kind eyes you've painted, but they're not my eyes. My eyes will be with my actual face and my body. Thank you very much. A face and a body that will be far away and will be aging and will not be yours. They never were. I didn't give them to you. And that painting is not me. It's you, your projection, your idea, your paint, your art, your dream. It's me, frozen in time, but it's not actually me, is it? It's always been you. The meaning is what you gave it. You don't take from me. You take from yourself. Unfortunately, Christina's health was not great. She had what was diagnosed as Graves' disease, and she wasn't all that healthy before that. Coughs, angina, swellings, breathlessness, all this sickness and debilitating illness, and a few breakdowns too. She was writing poetry and keeping up with her brother and his art, even as her father got sick and the family grew impoverished. And she was going to work as a governess, but was too sick to do so. But she did volunteer to help women's prisoners, women prisoners, which perhaps fueled all those poems she wrote about fallen women for whom she was empathetic in a kind of a but-for-the-grace-of-God way. She published poems. Critics admired them, but they didn't sell all that well. And some of the critics truly did not get her. Ruskin was one. Ruskin was hugely influential. He dominated the scene. But he was himself an odd guy, in my opinion, with some very fixed and decisive opinions, often wrongheaded or misthought or coming from a wellspring of dogmatic thinking that blinded him. Let's take a quick break and then talk about Ruskin and his misreading of Goblin Market, how he missed the boat on that one. And then we'll talk about some people who did appreciate Christina Rossetti a bit more, including one of our great heroes, and if you have listened to previous episodes, you know we have a rule here at the History of Literature podcast. When we hear from Virginia Woolf, we don't try to follow. She gets the last word, as she will again today. She wrote an essay called I Am Christina Rossetti. And if that doesn't hold your interest, I might as well give up because I don't think anything can. Ruskin and then Woolf after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. As you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I'm a huge Beatles fan, and so I will start with the story of George Martin and Ringo Starr. Ringo's not on the earliest Beatles records, not because he wasn't in the band, and we're ignoring here the earliest, earliest of their records when they backed up Tony Sheridan and all that, and their demo albums and all that. Let's just start with their first real records, Love Me Do and the B-side, P.S. I Love You. Two Lennon-McCartney songs, John and Paul and George on guitar and singing. George Martin, the uber-producer presiding over the session. And Ringo Starr, where was he? Sitting behind his drum kit? No, he was on the sidelines. Ringo Starr, the greatest drummer in Liverpool, the one who fit with the others, that turned them from a triangle with a dot into a square. They kicked Pete Best out of the band to make way for Ringo, and it changed everything. They felt it. It was like the fourth and concluding line of a magic spell. You don't cast a, a four-line spell with three lines. For this particular spell, you needed all four, and Ringo was the fourth. They made the magic. They all felt it, except George Martin. He said, hmm. That's not what we need for the record. I'm going to use this session musician I've hired. His name is Andy White. Here he is. He's going to play, boys. Do whatever you want for the for the tour. You can have Ringo. He looks good. He's got the hair like you guys. The girls might love him. Whatever. But for the record, we're going to use Andy White. Ringo never really got over the slight. He was so good-natured and good-humored, he didn't dwell on it either. But if you're the drummer in a band, you don't want to play the tambourine while someone else sits at the kit. What was George Martin's problem? Well, some say that he didn't actually have a problem with Ringo. He had hired Andy White after hearing Pete Best, who didn't keep time that well and who played with a kind of driving and heavy-handed and monolithic style, and they turned up for their session with Ringo, the new guy, and George Martin just said, hey, I've already hired a drummer. I'm going to stick to my plan. You've got a new guy, but I know what my guy can do. Feel free to use Ringo on the tour, but here, we're putting this on wax. We got we to gotta have, have Andy White. Here's a tambourine, dingo, or whatever your name is. Others say, no, he did hear Ringo, but he didn't appreciate him at first. Ringo was a feel drummer. He kept great time, but he grooved with the musicians. He found the pocket, which most people today say, yes, that's what you need for a band who's playing live, not a 
machine. You're not doing this in Pro Tools. You want a drummer who will fit the song and his fellow musicians, someone who can find that pocket and stay in it. But that's what people say in part because of Ringo. And this was before Ringo. George Martin, God bless him, had to adapt to the Beatles as he went along. They were breaking rules left and right. He did not yet know that they were not just breaking rules, they were rewriting the rule book. Not just accidentally breaking rules because they didn't know better, they were breaking them on purpose because they did. What? Two songwriters in the band? Yes, please. Backwards music, feedback, no real lead singer or a shared lead. Yes, and yes, and yes, all of that. Long hair, psychedelia, a bed in the studio, yes. Go with it as long as it lasts. By 1970, George Martin was going with the flow. But in 1962, he was there to say, hmm, the drumming in this band is not so crisp. I've got a studio musician who can give me the perfect crisp drumming I want. Andy White. Ten years later, we'd have a John Bonham in Led Zeppelin, who was irregular all over the place, but in a way that's suitable for the song, a way that's brilliant, a way that it looked. These aren't mistakes. These are. This is a drummer that's playing with feel, with genius. You can put a metronome on this and say, oh, wrong, wrong, wrong again. He sped up, he slowed down. Ooh, what's going on? What's wrong with this guy? He's terrible. But try to do this. Try to play this well. Try to play this perfectly for the song. Jimi Hendrix heard John Bonham and said, my God, his foot is like, it's like he's playing castanets. John Bonham died and his fellow Led Zeppelin members said, Led Zeppelin is no more. We can't do it without Bonham. He's essential. You wouldn't say that about a metronome. You wouldn't say that about a studio musician. You say that about a fellow artist. So here is an isolated drum track from the Led Zeppelin song Heartbreaker. Try to find the pattern here. And then when you can't, just admire the sound that has no pattern. A sound full of speeding up and slowing down. A sound that Matches the music, which you can hear faintly in the background in this track. A sound full of surprises. Okay, can you hear that? Those aren't mistakes, are they? They're deliberate. Okay, let's skip ahead a little bit in the song. We'll hear the conclusion of Heartbreaker or something closer to the end. And uh, listen again for the patterns, the breaks in the patterns, the flourishes, the seeming mistakes. See how it sounds to you.
Okay, could you hear that? Could you hear how it would get into a little bit of a, a pattern and then it would break the pattern? You get the sense he's... Ah, oh, that he's feeling the music. He's feeling the guitar and the singing, and he's going with what is flowing out of his heart and his body, probably his groin, knowing Led Zeppelin with someone like Christina Rossetti. Maybe it's her heart and her mind and her soul, her soul looking to the heavens. Anyway, John Bonham is Ringo to the max, if by Ringo we mean someone who's in the pocket or playing with the band or playing what the song needs as opposed to perfect time or flawless drumming or no mistakes because Ringo did have perfect time, actually. You can hear that over and over on the studio sessions. He was a metronome. He could be flawless. He could play with no mistakes. But he also played with the song, which is what the other Beatles appreciated. It's not him. It's you. It's what you use as your framework that needs to change. It's like saying, this painting is bad because it doesn't look like real life. Here, look at my photograph of the stars and the night sky and, and see. This painting doesn't look anything like that. And Van Gogh says, my night is starry in just this way. Deal with it. Look at how the reality of this painting I've painted is more vivid and more alive and more vibrant and more true than your lousy photograph. Ruskin read Goblin Market and wrote a letter to Dante Gabriel. Your sister, he said, keep in mind that John Ruskin was the foremost critic of his day. Your sister should exercise herself in the severest commonplace of meter until she can write as the public like until she can write as the public like, as the no doubt George Martin would have justified Andy White in the same way. Look, boys, you might like you might like Ringo and all, but I need to give the public what it expects. They'll think we're just a bunch of amateurs who can't tell good drumming from bad. Your sister should exercise herself. It's so condescending. She needs to work harder. She's making mistakes everywhere. She should, she should go and practice, work harder, and, and not, not send these works out into the world until she can fix herself. Ah, oh, so annoying. Here's a tambourine, Zingo. Get out of our way. Christina Rossetti was listening to a different tune, one that was dreamy and hypnotic with fits and starts and surprising rhymes and jigsaw patterns, not smooth lines. Wormholes and wrinkles in time. Jumps, leaps. And we are lucky to be able to hear what her ear heard. We follow the crooked path she created because a goblin market is not an army marching in perfect formation across an empty parking lot for us to gaze upon and admire for their rigidity and their discipline. A goblin market is going to be full of twists and turns and surprises jumping out of the shadows, right? Right? Isn't that what you would expect from goblins at a market? Ruskin, come on. Ruskin was so influential. Look, 
I don't want to sound like Jonathan Franz and damning Oprah with faint praise, but I love that Ruskin loved art. I love that he was a champion of painting and poetry. I think his, his heart was generally in the right place, and who am I to criticize someone who inspired Proust? But my goodness, to, to ask someone like Christina Rossetti to follow Ruskin's advice is a little like like people today who slavishly follow Thomas Jefferson. And yes, I'm using that word slavishly with some intention here, a bit of purpose. We podcasters are humans too. We find the pocket where it suits us. <laughs> I'm in the pocket. Going with what my heart tells me to say. It's a little like mindlessly following some guy from hundreds of years ago who had never heard of an iPhone or believed that, the, I don't know, the moon was made of cheese or something. It's time that we stop following you, Aristotle, and sorry, Isaac Newton, we aren't going to count the letters in the Bible to see when the world is going to end or whatever it is you think is important to do. And when you hear that John Ruskin was probably so freaked out by his wife's pubic hair, that's what people have speculated. It's the best explanation for Ruskin's complete shock and surprise by what he discovered on his wedding night and his appalling response afterwards. You just think, you know what? This guy Ruskin might not have all the answers. Confidence and and his profound, intense self-confidence notwithstanding, maybe he didn't have all the answers. And when he tells Dante Gabriel Rossetti to make Christina work just a little harder... And maybe she won't make quite so many mistakes. Well, I stand from the viewpoint of the 21st century to say, leave Christina alone. Thank God she didn't adapt herself to what Ruskin wanted. We would not have the poems we have with mystery and magic alongside her supreme talent and brazenness and the execution of her poetry. I learned long ago in pedagogy seminars that the worst teachers were the ones who had found a way to teach that worked for them and who assumed that, therefore, they just needed to instruct all other teachers in how to teach like they do. Because their way is the one true way. Consistency is the hobgoblin of foolish minds. We have goblins and we have fools. I'll take Christina Rossetti's goblins and leave the foolishness to the carping John Ruskin. We wouldn't have these poems if Christina had listened to him, and we would not, perhaps, have the admiring essay of Virginia Woolf, which we will take a look at after this. Virginia Woolf wrote her essay, I Am Christina Rossetti, on the occasion of what would have been Rossetti's 100th birthday. Woolf had been reading a biography of the poet, and she acknowledged that, hey, this woman was shy and 
probably would not have loved us talking about her life, but biographies are irresistible, and so we shall not resist. We're going to look at this Italian family and their impoverished little home. Wolf points out with what comes close to snobbery, may have been snobbery, giving her the benefit of the doubt, but it might have might have been snobbery that the Rossetti's Italianness meant that they didn't really try to be upstanding like middle-class British families did. They were happy to wear whatever clothes they wanted and have organ grinders over to dinner. Wolf describes a young, shy Christina Rossetti who was very religious, absorbed in her relationship of with God, the relation of the soul to God. And Christina Rossetti's God was dark and harsh and not one who loved pleasure. In fact, the theater was hateful to Christina Rossetti. Opera was hateful. Nakedness was hateful. Even chess was wrong. All these guilty pleasures. Something dark and hard like a kernel had formed in the center of Christina Rossetti's being, says Virginia Woolf. And that thing was, of course, religion. This was all very real to her, as it was for the other Rossettis, too, like her mother and like her sister Maria, who, this is pretty funny, who refused to visit the mummy room at the British Museum because the day of resurrection might suddenly dawn and it would be very unseemly to watch the mummified corpses rise into immortality. They might prefer to have some privacy. Wolf chuckles at this, but Christina admired it. In some ways, it was the place Christina was trying to get, this place where Maria lived naturally. What was the difference between the two? Christina was a poet. She was a poet to her core, at heart, at soul. Poets and poetry can take one into realms that devotion cannot, and maybe maybe those realms, maybe those impulses are at odds with one's strongest religious impulses. Wolf describes this world of Christina Rossetti's as, as like living in a tank. The fish swims round and round as we watch, and suddenly the fish breaks out and smashes the glass. And then Wolf tells a story of a tea party given by a woman named, of all things, Mrs. Virtue Tebbs. And someone said something, perhaps something casual and frivolous about poetry, this is what Wolf imagines may have been said. And then, quote, suddenly there uprose from a chair and paced forward into the center of the room a little woman dressed in black who announced solemnly, I am Christina Rossetti. And having so said, returned to her chair. With those words, Wolf says, the glass is broken the glass of this fish tank. Yes, she seems to say, I am a poet. Wolf cites the critics of Rossetti and the biographers of Rossetti and says, they are looking at a fish in a tank, thinking she's all contained. But Christina breaks the glass even now, even after all this time. We see her do it with her poetry. Biographers rattle around with her unimportant trifles, the engagements, the quaint little stories, and what's truly important about her, where her great soul genius takes over, is in her poetry. Professors, says Wolf, get it wrong. Professors say things like, quote, the meter of the principal poem, Goblin Market, may be best described as a de-doggeralized skeltonic, 
with the gathered music of the various metrical progress since Spencer, utilized in the place of the wooden rattling of the followers of Chaucer. There may be discerned in it the same inclination towards line irregularity which has broken out in different times, in the Pindaric of the late 17th and earlier 18th centuries, and in the rhymelessness of Sayers earlier and of Mr. Arnold later. Oof, wow. <laughs> that is quite a taxonomy. But the poets, Wolf says, the poets see Rossetti for what she is. The poets like Swinburne, who said that Rossetti's New Year hymn was, quote, touched as with the fire and bathed as in the light of sunbeams, tuned as to chords and cadences of refluent sea music beyond reach of harp and organ, large echoes of the serene and sonorous tides of heaven. Or the more poetically minded lecturer who said, quote, I think she is the best poet alive. The worst of it is you cannot lecture on really pure poetry any more than you can talk about the ingredients of pure water. It is adulterated, methylated, sanded poetry that makes the best lectures. The only thing that Christina makes me want to do is cry, not lecture. End quote. And Virginia Woolf says, what are we to do with criticism and biography of such a person? Such an artist, let us turn instead to the poems themselves. And so she does. And she concludes her essay in this way. Quote, Oh, Christina Rossetti, I have humbly to confess that though I know many of your poems by heart, I have not read your works from cover to cover. I have not followed your course and traced your development. I doubt, indeed, that you developed very much. You were an instinctive poet. You saw the world from the same angle always. Years and the traffic of the mind with men and books did not affect you in the least. You carefully ignored any book that could shake your faith or any human being who could trouble your instincts. You were wise, perhaps. Your instinct was so sure, so direct, so intense, that it produced poems that sing like music in one's ears, like a melody by Mozart or an air by Gluck. Yet for all its symmetry, yours was a complex song. When you struck your harp, many strings sounded together. Like all instinctives, you had a keen sense of the visual beauty of the world. Your poems are full of gold dust and sweet geranium's varied brightness. Your eye noted incessantly how rushes are velvet-headed and lizards have a strange metallic male. Your eye indeed observed with a sensual pre-Raphaelite intensity that must have surprised Christina the Anglo-Catholic. But to her, you owed perhaps the fixity and sadness of your muse. The pressure of a tremendous faith circles and clamps together these little songs. Perhaps they owe to it their solidity. Certainly they owe to it their sadness. Your God was a harsh God. Your heavenly crown was set with thorns. No sooner have you feasted on beauty with your eyes than your mind tells you that beauty is vain and beauty passes. Death, oblivion, and rest lap round your songs with their dark wave, and then 
incongruously. A sound of scurrying and laughter is heard. There is the patter of animals' feet and the odd guttural notes of rocks and the snufflings of obtuse furry animals grunting and nosing. For you are not a pure saint by any means. You pulled legs. You tweaked noses. You were at war with all humbug and pretense. Modest as you were, still you were drastic, sure of your gift, convinced of your vision. A firm hand pruned your lines. A sharp ear tested their music. Nothing soft, otios, irrelevant cumbered your pages. In a word, you were an artist. End quote. An artist. We started this episode with the question, where did Goblin Market come from? Christina Rossetti was an unlikely source for such a poem about sin, but was she really unlikely? Who knows more about Satan than those who believe firmly in God? Who knows more about divorce than those who believe strongly in marriage? Who knows more about sin than those who believe one's soul is at stake? Religion makes believers feel the consequences of sin more strongly, the temptations to, the pull, the ecstasy, and the agony of it. Where did this come from? Her religion, her worldview, her belief system, but also from her poet's mind. This poem, Goblin Market, was pulled from the fire, hot and glowing, from that realm that poets bravely dip into. It's not clear where, and it it maybe wasn't known to her either. In my reading of Goblin Market, the verses and imagery are not thought by Christina's mechanical brain, but dreamed into life by her genius, like the flames that come roaring out of a dragon's nostrils, part myth, part magic, instinctive, unknowable, but there. And that's how to read this too. Read her poetry in that spirit. Don't be the reader who's surprised and shocked like a man on his wedding night who sees something he thinks is some kind of grotesque imperfection. Be the reader who's capable and worthy of watching the dragon roar. We're lucky to have these unearthly things to push us towards sensations we might never have felt before. Leave the tambourine to the small-minded bean counters. Find yourself in the great booming groove that rakes across your spine and rips up the screaming skies. Okay, there we go. I appear to be incapable of calm. I live my life that way, one of the calms, and then I get rolling on these poems and end up as one of the storms. That's my instinct kicking in. My apologies for getting carried away. Maybe I just need to accept that I will do so. Get carried away and the podcast will spiral out of control as it has been for how many years now? <laughs> Five? Six? Oh, every time I start these things I have in mind that I'm going to deliver the facts like an encyclopedia and I'll stick to the facts, just the facts and every single time I wind up at the end with <laughs> With ashes, having burned down the entire library, yet another act of arson, I suppose. My thanks to John Ruskin and Virginia Woolf and Christina Rossetti. Here she is finally in all her glory. I hope you enjoyed that little foray into her life and legacy. 
Goblin Market is worth your time if you haven't read it yet. We'll be back with some guests next time. They at least will keep things grounded. Keep this wild balloon of a show, a balloon in a hurricane. <sighs> the guests at least supply a tether, don't they? They're not as freaking weird as I <laughs> or as I get anyway, once I get rolling. Okay, big sigh, heavy exhale. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.